Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Chatting Change. I'm your host, Charlie Ashby. Today we're going to be looking at some of our previous episodes and what our expert guests had to say on a variety of topics. Starting off this episode, we jump back into our discussion with research assistant Joe Bella and his views on disruptive technology. Um, well, this week we're actually talking about disruptive technology, which is yes. a very interesting discussion topic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's quite an interesting concept. The idea of disruptive, it's almost it's got, it's got negative connotations around it. If yeah. you hear of something as disruptive, you're instantly trying to shy away from it and you don't really want anything to do with it. Yeah. Um, which, funnily enough, is quite reflective of the wider view towards disruptive technology because change is bad. Yeah, it's funny. Like our our, our show title is Chat and Change, mm. but everyone considers change to be sort of a negative thing when really it doesn't yeah. have to be. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's more so it's it disruptive, not so much as in day to day operations. Of course, sort of the methods through which you achieve your day to day will differ. Yeah. But it's disruptive more so in a market sense. It, it disrupts the current status quo. Uh, it, it changes what's generally accepted as good practice or as mm-hmm. best practice. Um, and yeah, it's something not to shy away from, really. It's all about what is the next big step we can make to improve efficiency, to improve a general sort of employee satisfaction, if it's making their lives easier. It's generally going to be quite a disruptive, so to speak, uh, innovation. So particularly with disruptive technology, uh, sort of disruptive innovations is more so as an umbrella term, as a catch-up for disruptive things in nature. Okay. Uh, but yeah, with technology, it's sort of everywhere at the minute. It's all about what is the next big thing. Are sort of companies like hatching on to whatever, like trying to latch on to whatever is disruptive more now or... I suppose disruptive is more so what's on the horizon. So companies are trying to come up with the next disruptive thing. A lot of sort of tech startups that you hear about, they're all trying to shake up what is currently currently in practice, what's being done. Um, So companies themselves are probably investing quite a lot into research and development around something that can disrupt their sector. As sort of counterintuitive as that sounds to say. (laughs) Uh, stemming from again the negative connotations of disruptive um, but it is uh, at the core of it trying to become more efficient trying to become more streamlined in their processes can you give an example like uh, in recent times that someone might know someone might know um, yeah like so, the, the common man <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of I think, believe it's Ocado yes yeah, yeah, yeah. Company. Um, so what they've done that's quite disruptive is a lot of their warehouses are just fully automated Okay. It's, you'll go through, um, you'll see videos online where it's, it is quite a futuristic looking thing where you've got all these robots zooming around <laughs> and avoiding each other, whereas what would usually be done by, say, 40 to 50 employees picking is now hundreds of robots all running about. I think <laughs> the only manual interaction people have within those sites are when it comes to packaging everything together at the end. Yeah. So all of the running back and forth to pick locations within the warehouse is done by robots. Um, so what that sort of opens up with in regard to disruptive nature is it's a complete reconfiguration of how warehouses are designed and how they're organized. So obviously when you're considering robots, you don't have to 
adhere to what are sort of the health and safety standards for people <laughs> where you can't have things over your head um, you don't need sort of a certain amount of width between aisles for yeah. forklifts to fit now um, so it becomes a smaller operation in just sheer terms of size uh, but it also becomes more efficient uh, you've got reduced overhead cost of the actual space you're taking up you've got reduced overhead cost in that you're employing fewer people um, and then the flip side of that is then you also are generating more sort of high worth jobs in the maintenance of the robots and sort of the progressions around streamlining that process further. So I'd say that's probably one of the more sort of cutting edge approaches that warehouses are taking at the minute. Yeah, it's funny, like growing up, you always think about robots as sort of this futuristic thing, but and it might not be specifically sort of the idea of what we imagine like a robot butler helping you out mm. or something but it is happening at the right now i guess it is yeah and it's sort of say throughout the 60s and 70s as sort of now looking back on it, it's the idea of retro futurism right? yes all right not not quite we haven't got flying cars through the streets <laughs> we haven't got anything that was expected but it's sort of the same functionality but it's just no one could really envisage what it would look like Following on from that great discussion, we look back at our first Supply Chain Academics episode, in which our director, Liam Fassum, and Mills Hills discussed the issues regarding drones and airports. Um, so last night, uh, flights to Newark were disrupted for a while uh, after a drone was spotted, and obviously in the UK we've seen a certain amount of similar disruption. So when um, you said drone was spotted, you're not talking about an academic droning on, you're talking about a physical... Yes, this, this was one that was not, not so easily avoided, unfortunately, oh, okay. uh, as, as those droning academics that we, uh, we love to hate. Um, so what do we do about this then? You know... Airports, part of critical infrastructure you've just mentioned, a lot of cyber attacks are often very cheap to mount with huge costs imposed on businesses and uh, loss of opportunity costs and the rest of it. Uh, airports are pretty much soft targets, to use a phrase we've used a couple of times mm -hmm. today. Um, there are some technological solutions which can be deployed to, uh, uh, to, to protect airports and other places. And uh, a graduate of um, our MBA top-up programme uh, set up a company called Drone Defence, which is one of the leaders in that space in the UK. We'll, we'll have him on in the future uh, podcast. Um, but in the meantime, before the technology gets out there, and then no doubt it's going to be a total you know, poacher slash gamekeeper battle to try and um, keep the drones out of uh, planes' way, um, are we just going to have to get used to disruption to your favourite form of locomotion aircraft? Potentially. I will say that I'm quite excited about this drone thing because Twitter and other social media platforms are available, of course, was, has been lit up for the past three years with experts on politics and Brexit. I'm surprised how many people there are in the country that are an expert at this. All yeah. of a sudden, since yeah. all this drone stuff, I'm amazed how many experts we have in this country about drones and what you do. I think some of these people are multi-skilled. No, I think they're the same people. There's about 66 million people in this country totally. that's an expert on a drone. It's, it's they're all amazing. drone experts. They're all international yep. trade negotiators. Awesome. They're all, awesome. They're all blockchain experts. I am full of confidence. We'll have all of them on. Anyway, so... <laughs> I was talking to somebody recently at the wonderful Transport Systems Catapult who is who is an expert in drones. That's what they do. I, I don't um, apologise my my flippant nature. Now I don't understand the technology that goes behind them. I, I can see their use and their importance. Yes, um, I can also. Well, I, I'm struggling to understand why you'd want one as a toy. But well, I've got several, and I've got to say they are very very difficult to fly okay. uh, unless you are aged eight, when apparently it is just 
comes naturally to you. I don't know whether my, my eight-year-old is going to be a helicopter pilot or something in the future, or maybe a, a predator uh, controller, um, but they're massively difficult to fly, unless if you spend a 1,500 quid instead of 30 quid, um, they suddenly get a lot easier. Wow. But um, yeah, I mean, well, they are quite fun, anyway. Links quite nicely to what this, this chap was, was saying, is that yeah. this control piece. So at the moment, we have these wonderful bastions of the sky called the called NATS, of the National Air Traffic um, control service yeah who guide our aircraft in and out through the airways of of the uk and do a wonderful job very congested airspace yeah and that yeah. involves semi-automation and all you hear from people as well yeah we've had automation aircraft for a number of years yes you have you've got, but you've had semi-automated environment mm. which still requires the intervention of a human being to to talk to each other to instruct the the object as an aircraft to do something based yeah. on, on on the airways he was explaining to me, and quite interestingly, or at least I thought, that that's all well and good, and we've cracked the nut with air traffic control at the moment, and there are still risks and there are still incidents that happen, even mm. with this amazing job that they do and the complexities that they have and the software that sits behind it. So the issue they're having at the moment with any of these drones is automated air traffic control. So how do you get something that's automated to react in an instant along an airway? So if you need something that's automated to move, 10 degrees to the right and head off in a different direction. Mm. How, they're not quite sure how you do that. And then to mix that with semi-automated air mm. traffic control is an absolute brain ache for them at the moment. Right. So okay. it goes beyond the scope of trying to geo-ring geo fence an airport and saying any drone that goes anywhere near that will simply drop out the sky. Mm. We, you, you can't do that because the police need to do something. That, you know, yes, and you can't just be firing stuff, whether it's electromagnetic yeah, or so shotgun pellets into the air. It just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. and so, uh, uh, so then the next step would be this automated air traffic control system. But mm. We're at a loss to how that would work. I mean, we can't even, I don't want to peel it back to automated, well, it is automated vehicle, isn't it? But we can't even get a car to follow another car on a piece of tarmac without it having some sort of sensational crash and it ended mm. up in, in, in a newspaper. Mm. Yet people seem to want us to be able to automate and, and do all that sort of stuff in the sky. I mean, that's a right. whole different level of complexity and danger, personal privacy, restricted airspace, yeah. potential terror at the heart. There's a whole, you can go on for days and days and days talking about the risks associated mm. with this. Mm. Uh, I, I, there is. There is no silver bullet answer to this. So automation can, or semi-automation can help us squeeze more aircraft into the same, obviously there's a finite amount of sky up there. Yeah. Um, however, I'm sure that the development of this has taken into account weather and needing to reroute things according to weather change. But as soon as you mess things up by sort of saying, okay, there's no movements at, let's choose an airport at random, Gatwick, mm -hmm. uh, because a drone uh, may be lurking near there. When mm -hmm. all of the, the the management of diversion, stacking planes, handling fuel emergencies, and the rest of it, instantly falls back onto human controllers dealing with the pilots, mm -hmm. and all the attendant increased risks of, of all that and cost. I know, I know. I look at mm. from very business. I heard something on the radio yesterday. Uh, EasyJet had posted that those two days or whatever it was cost them cost them fifteen million pounds. That's that's one airline. That's and that's just an airline. And then mm. you have all the infrastructure around it, the shops, the retail units, the people that sell the fuel. Yeah. And disrupted holidays and, and disappointed families. The, the you can't put a cost on that, can massive. you? That's a lot. It's yeah. massive just because some, someone decided to do something with the drone. Or, or maybe not. Or maybe not, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah. But as with recalls, there was no choice but to take the action that was taken by the authorities, was it? You couldn't just continue on thinking, well, 
you know, we, we've heard reports of a drone, but we haven't physically seen it. So we're just going to carry on till we spot one because you cannot contemplate the, an aircraft actually making contact with a, with a drone on, the, on its final approach. But you make a really good point about a drone hitting a plane on final approach and the catastrophic events that could happen to it. A little bit risque here coming out and saying this, but a, friend, mm. a, friend, a good friend of mine worked for a very well-known airline and it, as an engineer, and he spent his Saturday evenings firing frozen chickens into, a, into oh, an yes. engine yes. to simulate what would happen with a bird strike. Yes. Um, now, I've seen these some of these drones, and they actually have the mass, well, a, a smaller mass than a bird does. So, and I could get massively picked up by an engineer here, but mm, if, mm. if an aircraft can take a bird strike at yeah. speed, yeah. surely a drone is something similar, but... Yes, agreed. Uh, but I think that that's going to be a matter for insurance and other things, isn't it? Let alone the brand reputational damage. Because if you know a drone might be there, that's different to knowing, uh, to not knowing and not being able to predict that a swan, a seagull, an eagle, um, or indeed a frozen chicken um, could be in the airspace that you're but flying your plane point, through. This is the point I'm trying to make and should have made before I said is that there is a trade-off of the risk. So somebody will sit mm. around the table at that airport in Sussex. Yes. And say we know or we heard reports that there is a drone flying around. Yeah. Therefore, we open up the risk manual. Yeah. And there isn't a piece in there for for flying drones. Therefore, it's an elevated risk because we don't know how to react to that risk. Therefore, the best course of action to mitigate that risk is mm. to close the airport. Right. If somebody said there are there are swans over Windsor. Mm. Evidently. <laughs> yeah. We know there are swans over Windsor, and we know they go flying around. Mm. But it doesn't close down Heathrow Airport. Because there's a book that you can open and say what happens when there's swans flying over mm, Windsor. Mm. So th it's an unknown, I suppose, is the point we're trying to make with drones. And I agree maybe with that. there needs yeah, to be more sure. money put into understanding the true risk that drones drones um, pose to the industry, aviation, and yeah. other forms of transport yeah, as well. Yeah. And then being able to give people the tools to be able to make decisions based on the risks presented to them. I mean, that's a really good point. And one I've not really heard mentioned at all in, in the media or in the, by the many experts that there are on Twitter that you, you correctly reference. And from a sort of a contingency planning, business continuity exercising perspective, which is mm. to some degree my background, you know, given that this is now going to be an ongoing um, challenge, um, then there does need to be some rehearsed ways in which you go from normal operations at somewhere like Gatwick to getting all those aircraft somewhere else, getting all the repositioning sorted out. Mm -hmm. Because obviously there is no choice but to shut, I would suspect. Um, but there's got to be a better way of handling the consequences to airlines, to people's mm -hmm. holidays, to something else. And that's complicated, um, but not necessarily complex. But it sounds, uh, to us at least, as though no one's really given it much thought. Mm. And perhaps it's because it's never been a risk before, isn't it? And well, it's... I don't know. I don't know. It's easy to say that, but I've just jotted down on my little pad here uh, remote-controlled helicopters. Now, actually, remote-controlled helicopters, although probably even more fiendishly difficult to fly and a bit more expensive to buy, perhaps, been around for a long time. Yep. No one's really flown no, them near airports before, but could have done. I know in other other parts of the world, insurgency conflicts and so on, uh, groups have, have used all sorts of remotely-controlled boats and aircraft and other things. Um, I just wonder whether we, as usual, haven't quite been imaginative enough thinking about the potential risks. You know, whether it was a whether today it's a remote controlled helicopter or a drone for thirty quid or three thousand, um, is it that new? Potential risk? I'm not sure it is. 
I think I don't think we need to detail all the risks though. This is the danger we're getting into. Oh yeah, that true. Having run companies, if I had to detail every risk that the company was open to and react to every single risk, we would have never, we, we wouldn't have been able to open the doors in the morning. <laughs> true. So there, there is a piece of good point. Shut down. But there is a piece to say. There's there's risk in everything we do. It's how we react to that risk. Mm. And, and there's there's a with this particular thing around drones, we yeah. we really don't know what would happen if something made contact with a fuselage of an aircraft. We, mm. we, we just don't. Mm. I've seen some quite spectacular stuff on, on the news on TV mm. where they've flown drones into wings. But I stand to be corrected on this. They're not the wing of a 777 aircraft. They're a wing of a Cessna. And it right, makes, okay. it, it makes yeah, much yeah. sense. I'm not suggesting there's any difference or they're weaker or stronger mm, or anything like that, but mm, mm. no one's actually understood what could or should happen with this. Yeah. It just it's been sensationalised. People don't know how to react to it, mm. and therefore it is just it grew out of control. Mm. There was mm. a drone sighting at Heathrow about a week later, if I remember. And I did panic because I was flying out there on my popular, my most popular form of transport. Yes, but for some reason it was handled in a completely different manner at Heathrow and had incredibly minimal disruption to flights. Mm. There mm. was an evening of some flights got cancelled and diverted, but it did not shut the airfield. Right. They were still having to, maybe that's something to do with twin, twin runway operations or something like that. I don't know where you can divert mm. into one mm. runway and ring fence the other runway, but mm. they handled it different. Newark last night seemed to have handled it slightly different to mm. the way it was in Sussex. I'm mm. not, and, I, and I'm not saying what was done in Sussex was wrong. No, we don't know the full details of what they... It seems to have been an yeah. iterative learning process that maybe mm. people have looked at what happened at Gatwick mm. and then transferred that learning to Heathrow and then mm. again to the... Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think you make a good point. I mean, it's very easy to become kind of... to sort of imagine these drones are some sort of sinister, malevolent force of the like of which we've never encountered. But of course, uh, you know, as you're hinting, you know, aircraft are built to withstand hitting really quite large birds, you mm. know, a big goose or a, or a swan or something as a, a fairly or a, meaty or a creature. strike. Or yeah, lightning strike and other things. Every year, so. Yeah, so or, or, although hitting a drone would be very bad, uh, it's very unlikely to be catastrophic. Mm. And maybe this is acquiring a sort of power in our consciousness as, as travellers, and well, not you because you're fearless, and, and many of us travellers uh, and airport, airfield operators and others that, that perhaps it doesn't deserve. But uh, and, and, and I'm not suggesting for a second that there's not a risk involved in it. Yeah. Or that it wouldn't cause damage. I'm just saying we don't understand that. Yeah. And therefore that's causing us to handle the risk in a completely different way yeah. than if we understood what the risk yeah. was. Yeah. It's very different, isn't it, to that volcanic dust stuff from a couple of years ago where actually flying through that, although eventually there were some tests done that showed it wasn't quite as destructive as, mm -hmm. as it was thought, but anyone flying through that was a very bad idea. Um, it seems like actually continuing to operate, knowing that planes are you know, capable of handling swans and geese and such like, might, might be the future complemented by uh, interesting technologies to deter mm. or, or deny the space to drones. But I suppose we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the powers that be shut down the airport for a reason, kept yes. everyone safe. That's true. And they did their job and they yep. move millions and millions and millions of people around every year. Yep. And two days disruption every five years yep. or so, is not, in my mind, is, is a very, very small surprise to Spain. And the, the complex that operation, they got a lot of bad press for it. Mm. I mean, if they had to detail every single risk that's out there mm. and have a rule book for it, with, with a business, you, they would never fly a single airplane. It'd just be grounded. So I think the Absolutely. way they handled it, mm. they got a lot of mocking in the press over it, and they did it at Newark last night. But I, I still think 
given what they deal with on a daily basis is my mm. yeah agreed in, in the yeah. scheme of things yeah. that people should start actually supporting them yeah and if there's anything that that, that industry is good at is learning very quickly isn't oh, it yeah. so yeah. I'm, I'm sure lessons will be learned and uh, the airlines and airfield operators will have measures in place to if it happens again uh, hopefully adapt and be agile so that people still get away on their holidays and mar- uh, honeymoons and such like with minimal minimal disruption mm. in this next clip we hear cyber reporter eric geller explain how cyber attacks could affect our supply chains it's really a, a combination of the, the increasing sophistication of technology and the increasing uh, globalization of uh, production and distribution. Um, I think the best example is uh, in, the, in uh, the, the WannaCry and NotPetya malware attacks that happened, uh, uh, oh gosh, was it already two years ago? That's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty wild. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we've seen as a result of some of these malware attacks is when they spread uncontrollably, they can have unintended consequences. And in, in the case of the NotPetya attack, what you saw was uh, the global shipping giant uh, Maersk uh, was unable to move cargo through some of its facilities because the computers that controlled the distribution of the different cargo containers and, you know, the, the computers have to talk to the ships when they come into the port. They've got to, you know, learn from the ships what they're carrying and where each of those containers is supposed to go. Well, this ransomware was not intended to, to attack Maersk, but it did. It, it destroyed their entire computer network, basically. And uh, that that prevented them in large part from being able to move cargo through some of these facilities. There were massive lines of trucks waiting to get into some of these ports because the computers that were at the entry points were not working. And, 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 you know, you actually had companies saying, you know, calling their drivers while the drivers were, you know, in line waiting to get into the port and saying, it's a security threat for your truck to be sitting there where somebody could try to hijack it, come back to the facility. We're not getting in today. Um, and this was all because of a, a piece of code that was written somewhere, distributed for some purpose, and then got out of hand and, and, and spread uncontrollably, essentially. And uh, there's a fascinating story in, uh, in Wired, uh, Wired.com, if, if anybody wants to Google it, um, to learn basically how Maersk was able to resume operations um, and how in the interim they had to do a lot of things with pen and paper. It really makes you think about how much we've digitized and how many of those things are in the background of our lives at all times. You know, I'm talking to you right now on a microphone that I bought on Amazon. This microphone was built somewhere. Uh, it was designed somewhere. Uh, the people who built it were hired by a company. They were given uh, permission to go into a factory and build this thing. Well, what happens if through a, a cyber threat or another type of threat, you can compromise that supply chain of producers and distributors and essentially infect it? and put something in that process that has ripple effects throughout the entire process. And and you could imagine the consequences of that, not just for a microphone, but for uh, telecommunications equipment. That's a big conversation that we're having in the United States right now. And I know that uh, many of the the other Western countries that are getting ready to build their 5G wireless networks are also having these conversations about what kind of companies do they want to permit to help them build these networks. I mean, yeah, not long ago, the Apple FaceTime uh, bug popped up, which was a sort of a big problem. Like just anyone could have listened to any of your conversations. Yeah, that's another great example. And and in that case, it was not uh, a hacker introducing 
um, a deliberate uh, vulnerability in the code, at least not as far as we know. It was somebody who was people were, were responsible for designing uh, FaceTime and they made a mistake and that was exploitable and it was exploited. Um, and yeah, that's another great example of the other kind of supply chain vulnerability, which is just a mistake somewhere in the process that anybody can exploit. It's not that a, 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 somebody has written a special piece of code, um, but it's that there's a, a simple vulnerability out there that people can take advantage of as long as they know where it is. The last clip we'll be hearing tonight is from our very first episode with our director, Liam Fessum. In this segment, he explains how Brexit may end up affecting supply chains. I suppose the biggest, the biggest, most fundamental way it will affect the supply chain will be through visibility. Um, and it is a, a very boring and a very overused set of terms, but visibility is the thing that makes the supply chain work. And without visibility, you can't do simple things like see where orders are or track stock coming in and communicate with, with suppliers and customers alike. So therefore, your, your business becomes a bit strained. Once something like Brexit, and I suppose if we take remove a little bit the emotion from it mm -hmm. and call it a geopolitical risk, because that's what this is. Anytime there's some sort of geopolitical risk, and you touched on Trump earlier on today, so um, some, along with the American politics or UK European politics or Russian politics or Asian politics, when there's a, a geopolitical risk across borders, there's a risk that you no, can no longer see the information behind that border. Yeah. And once you can't see that, you become blind in supply chain. And effectively, you, you are ordering by fluke. You're hoping that the goods will turn up. You're hoping that your forecasts are correct. You're hoping that the warehouses will be full. So that's the first and most fundamental issue with Brexit or geopolitical risks. I think you made a really good point about like taking the emotion out of it. Because obviously, there's a, we all, all people, we've got mm -hmm. thoughts and dreams and yeah. ideas of what should be. But you got to really think about the logistics, like the actual facts about it too. Because it's it must be very hard to not know what's going on. <laughs> if you don't know what's going on, then mm. what are you supposed to do? And then I'm sure that gets politicised in its own little way. Like, oh, you're, you're just saying this because blah, 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 blah. Or does that make it more frustrating? I think it's fr the most frustrating piece about Brexit, I'll say it again, <laughs> or this is the fact that there is a lot of emotion attached to it. So rather than being quite, maybe I am being a bit too black and white and cold about this. But if you be objective about this, it doesn't matter whether we're in or out. What political party is driving this? You still need food in the cupboards. You yeah. still need a supply chain to work, right? So the supply chain is apolitical; it should be it stands by itself. But it gets affected by political decisions, and when these decisions are made, nobody is making any forecasting or attempt at forecasting what may happen. A great example was this week, where a, a, a large amount of money was spent driving trucks around an airfield in Manston because we think the the border is going to clog up. Now, you know, that's to be quite frank, as much use as a chocolate teapot. <laughs> that's not solving the problem. All we're doing is saying, instead of there being a bottleneck at the port, we're going to move the bottleneck to a, to an air, a disused airfield in North Kent. And, you know, we could, we could effectively move it up towards the Midlands if we want to, where, where a lot of the stuff's end destination, we're going to turn the trucks around. It's not dealing with the bottleneck. You're just moving it into some, some other area and making it someone else's problem. So we seem hell-bent on that. And, again, we're 48 days away from a potential leaving the European Union, and we're still trying to drive trucks around and work out what the bloody hell we're going to do with the queue. So that, that doesn't make sense to me. So, so, and if we take it into a, if we think about it from a supply chain, some of the supply chains worked in, 
especially some of the food ones, we could be ordering a month to three months ahead the stock that's coming in. I don't know how any of the supply chains at the moment in the UK are ordering past, uh, when are we supposed to be leaving? Is it March? Yeah, March. Yeah, so really past March. Thing. So the next quarter, quarter two forecast. How, how anyone is doing a quarter two forecast in business right now is beyond me and I'll take my hat off to them because how, how can you? How can you possibly predict what the lead time of a lettuce from Spain to England is going to be come March? You can't. Oh, it's yeah. all subjective. It's, 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 that's the most frustrating piece. Well, that's all we have time for this week. As always, we want to thank both the University of Northampton's List Institute and Societal for helping create this podcast. You can find us on Twitter at societal underscore or on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching societal CIC. To find out more about us via our website, simply head to www.societal.org.uk. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon.